We all can be seated. I love that song, um, but one of the things that's true about Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery is, is you kind of need all of the chapters together in order to see the beauty of that mystery. Like, like if you just have a single part of that story, maybe Christ died, you don't have the wondrous mystery that we sing of. We need it all together in order to be awed by the mystery. And I think one of the things that's difficult for us is we live a life that's broken up into lots of short pieces. And most of our life, we end up going through our day without getting the whole picture of what God has actually been up to. Um, So just kind of a, a question to get you thinking a little bit as we start this morning. How many times have you found yourself coming home after a long, weary day at work or at school, and one of the thoughts that's just been running around in your mind is a realization that the world around you isn't running right? I imagine quite a bit. How often have you been faced with the realization Um, That the wisdom of people who happen to be poor gets ignored, while the foolishness of some people who happen to have a lot of money, people bend their ear to and come out of the woodworks to hear. Or you notice that the humble, hardworking person gets passed over, and the person who's slacking off gets promoted. One whose life is marked with selfishness and arrogance has... A rather easy life. From beginning to end, everything just seems to always go their way. Every time they do something that you think, okay, now it's going to come back and bite them, it it never does. And, And you do your best to follow Jesus, and you hit bump after bump after bump. I'm assuming all that's experiences that you're fairly familiar with. Have you, though, gotten to the point where the foolishness of the world around you doesn't surprise you anymore? Things happen that shouldn't happen that way, and you don't even really notice because you're just used to things not working the way that it feels like they should. Well, this is where the preacher is at in Ecclesiastes this week. Things just continue to not go the way that he knows the world ought to work. By the way, If you're new with us, we are in the book of Ecclesiastes. If you've never read it, it is a bit of a strange book. Um, It's a book that doesn't feel the need to tidy itself up for polite company. Ecclesiastes just says what he sees and lets the chips fall where they may. It's, I think, rather refreshing in a lot of ways. It may be kind of where you find yourself at this morning. Um, So let me invite you to join us in Ecclesiastes. Uh, We are in Ecclesiastes 9. As you go ahead and turn there, I'm going to pray and ask God to be with us, to bless us, and to teach us. Father of heaven and earth, it is good that we can call you Father. For in a world filled with expected foolishness, it's a comfort and it's a peace to know that you who reign and rule love us. 
So as you have promised to be, we pray that you would be with us. We pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, a desire to obey. Help us to grow in our understanding of who you are, of what you've given to us. And help us to be faithful to that end. We pray that you would form us and shape us, that we would become less selfish and more selfless. That we would have our eyes lifted up, looking to the needs and the interests of those around us. And most importantly, to living lives that would be faithful to you. So bless your people like only you can, we pray. Amen. Ecclesiastes 9. I'm going to start in verse 13, and we will go all the way through the end of chapter 20. Ecclesiastes 9. The preacher says, starting in verse 13, I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in that city a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet, no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might. Though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard, the words of the wise, heard in quiet, are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of wars, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, don't leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest." There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were, an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall in it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. And the words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness." A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be. And who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility, and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth the roof sinks in, and through indolence the house leaks. 
Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. Well, the, the preacher starts off with a, a story that, though you may not be familiar with this exact one, you've probably experienced something like it. There is a, a city that's not that big, not that impressive, has no army, and this great king marches against it. And a poor man, who's wise, leads the city to be delivered from the one who is attacking the city. And up to this point, we are, maybe for one of the first few times in Ecclesiastes, thinking he has something positive to say. Did you notice how he starts? Verse 13, he says, I've seen this example of wisdom under the sun. That's normally not what he notices he sees under the sun. He sees wisdom, and then he tells this little story about this uh, small town who manages to stand up against this mean king who builds siege works against it, and it does it by the wisdom of this man who happens to be poor, but the story, as is so often the case in Ecclesiastes, doesn't actually end happily ever after. The end of the story is the wise man who's poor is forgotten. This is the way of wisdom in our world, Ecclesiastes says. It may flare up for a little bit, but the first thing that this preacher wants us to hear at this point is that folly triumphs. It's tragic, and maybe not altogether too surprising. It's typical. There's a typical and tragic triumph of folly in the world around us. So if you're taking notes, that's the first thing I want you to notice. So the preacher sets this up. Here's the story. Here's where wisdom shows up, and everybody does what everybody always does, and they ignore the wisdom, and they pursue folly. And the preacher spends the next several verses, all the way really down to verse 7 in chapter 10, heaping this pile of praise on wisdom. And so he piles up wisdom, and as he does, he mocks folly. And I want you to just notice all the things that he says about wisdom. He says uh, that wisdom is better than strength. That's not something we often think of. In our world, we tend to value strength over wisdom. But he says wisdom is better than strength. He says it's better than weapons. He says wisdom is uh, it's a restful quiet and not loud and obnoxious. He says there, there's something captivating, something controlling about foolishness. A little foolishness, he says, actually overcomes a whole lot of good. Did you catch that picture in chapter 10? Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So you can have a lot of something that's really good, and you drop in one dead fly, and what was once a lot of good quickly becomes a lot of not so good. He notes that a wise person, a wise, wisdom turns a man to the right, and folly turns somebody to the left. Often in the Bible, uh, to go to the right is kind of associated with doing moral good, and left is seen as not. Fun fact for you, by the way. Uh, our word sinister, you know, you describe somebody as sinister, you're not speaking highly of them. 
that's actually the Latin word for left, left hand, because in the ancient world, there was a whole lot of just the general trend was if something was to the right, it was generally morally good, and if it was to the left, that would be kind of a picture for not morally good. So we just kind of brought in the word sinister because we don't like left-handed people. Just kidding. Um, Amen. There you go, Carla. (laughs) Uh, So the preacher says, wisdom turns one to the right, folly turns one to the left, Um, and and he notices uh, in verse 5 and 6 that even the rulers tend to move towards folly, and so they exalt people who shouldn't be exalted, and they humble people who shouldn't be humbled. And the conclusion to all of this is wisdom is so great, yet it is not pursued. It's neglected and avoided, and we'd rather pursue folly. And the preacher calls all of this a great evil. You notice the turn that he makes. At the beginning, he started with this, something great under the sun, it's wisdom, and by the end, he's speaking of something evil under the sun. So the question that I think then stretches out to us is if wisdom is so great, then what does continuing to forget wisdom lead to? And So that's going to lead us through the rest of our text. So we're going to look at verses 8 through 15 in one section, and verses 16 through 20 if you're taking notes. Verses 8 through 15 are going to be about what happens to us personally when we continue to pursue folly and ignore and forget wisdom. And verses 16 through 20 are going to think what happens to us as a community when we do that. Um, So the first place we'll start is in chapter 10, verse 8. And he asks the question, what happens... When we forget wisdom and pursue folly. I have a friend who likes to say that if you play stupid games, you win stupid prizes. It's true, isn't it? Um, maybe, maybe you think of somebody who's doing something and they're not thinking about it. And what happens when they complete said task? Things don't go well for them. They get the prize that they were playing Four, uh, maybe you happen to have a little child in your home who wants to jump off a coffee table, and you tell her no, and she does, and then she complains because her feet hurt. You play these games, and you get these prizes. Maybe you're thinking about saying something, and you know you shouldn't, but you're really frustrated, and you really want to say what's going on in your mind, and you do. What happens? You play stupid games and you win stupid prizes. That's the way this works. And so the preacher notices what often happens when people indulge folly. He says that the person who digs a pit, what happens to him? He falls in it. You try to trap somebody else, that's not a game worth playing. What happens? You get the prize that that game hands you and you fall into your own pit. He talks about a man uh, who breaks through a wall. And his his reward for breaking through a wall is he gets bit by a snake. Now, why there's snakes in walls, I don't know. Um, Maybe in the ancient world they were a little short on insulation and they figured if they laid out some snakes that might help them out. 
I don't know. Maybe the preacher is saying, you never know what's in the wall behind you. You probably shouldn't get angry and stick your fist through it. If you do, you might get bit by a snake. In our day, maybe you go to anger management. Um, but he, he lines up these things, and he says, if you dig a pit, you fall into it. If you stick your hand through a wall, you get bit by a snake. Just, I think you know this, but just so we do. Um, he's not telling you what particular things not to do. Like, he's not saying, if you really don't like your neighbor and you want to trap him, don't dig a pit, set up a net. He's saying, don't play that game at all. He's not saying, if you get angry, don't stick your fist through the wall, stick your foot through the wall. He's saying, just cool it, right? Um, so he says, if you play these games, you get these prizes. Uh, he talks about the, the guy who thinks he's going to save a little bit of time by not sharpening his axe. Why waste the time sharpening an axe? I'll just save time and keep on working with my dull axe, and it doesn't go very well. This may remind uh, some of you of a certain person named Kevin Ballone, who famously asked one time, why waste time? Use lot word when few word do trick. And the end of that is he ends up saying a whole lot more words than he would have if he would have just spoken normally. Sharpen your axe, he says. Don't waste time by thinking you're saving time. Do the work. Put the time in. He says the one who plays with snakes, the silly snake charmer down a little bit later, what happens to him? He gets bit by the snake that he's trying to charm. Some things are better left alone. The fool, he says, he begins to talk. And maybe you've been in a situation like this. You hear somebody begin to talk, and alarm bells start going off in your mind. And you think, I'm, they may not be real bright. They might be a little bit foolish, but what do foolish people tend to do? Keep talking. And as they talk, what you at first perceive to think, maybe, then you begin to know. And if that wasn't enough, how do people who are foolish tend to try to dig themselves out? Keep on talking. And so the preacher notices that this foolish person shows his foolishness by talking, and he continues to show his foolishness by talking some more, and what was once unclear but possible quickly begins to be seen much more clearly. The point of all this, when we pursue folly and we forget wisdom, it leads to destruction for ourselves. Maybe you've seen that in your own life or those that you love. The preacher says, though it often looks like folly just continues going on without a problem, right? You remember the, the story of the city? The wise poor man delivers the city and the wise poor man is forgotten. It often looks like in our world that folly is remembered and wisdom is forgotten preacher says that is not the way that it actually permanently is. When we pursue folly, we win the prize that folly gives us. It's destructive for us as individuals. But it's not just destructive for us as individuals, he says. It's also destructive for us as a community. And so in the next section, he turns his gaze to the community as a whole. He says, Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child. 
when your king's childish and his princes feast in the morning. So he says it goes bad for the kingdom when the one who rules over that kingdom is childish and his princes think think that the first thing to do in the morning is to throw a party and get drunk. He says that folly doesn't just affect those individuals. It happens to also affect all of the community. He says, happy are you, in verse 17, O land, when your king is the son of nobility and your prince's feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Our folly or our wisdom doesn't stop with us, but it extends to others. I think verses 18 and 19, which might seem a little strange at first, um, are what the preacher is envisioning this foolish king and his princes saying. So you can imagine you've got this childish king who surrounds himself with princes who think the morning is the time for feasting and for getting drunk. And then they have a kingdom to run. And what happens to that kingdom? The same thing that happens to a household that's, that's neglected. The roof begins to sink in. The house begins to leak. And what's the response to this thing when it falls apart? Bread is made for laughter. And wine gladdens life and money answers everything. How do we dig ourselves out of the hole that we have? We just spend more money. That's what it's for. Money will answer everything the childish king and his drunk princes say. Which, you know only leads the problems deeper and deeper and deeper. And so our folly and wisdom don't just affect us. It does affect us, but it also affects those around us, whether you're running a kingdom or whether you're raising a family. You know that this is true. You take care of things when they need to be taken care of. If your roof starts to leak, you don't ignore it. You go get it fixed. If you start having some problems, you do maintenance. You know that money doesn't answer everything because you can't raise your kids by just buying them your love. They need wise parents who love and are present. This isn't the way that you run a kingdom. It's not the way that you run a household, and it's not the way that you run yourself. And so he notes that there's this folly that seems to be present all over the world. And he notes that there's a temptation for us to do the same. And so he gives a little warning in verse 20. He says, even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, which by the way, would be pretty easy to do given how this childish king has been acting. He says, even in your thoughts, don't curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. Why? For a bird of the air will carry your voice or some winged creature will tell the matter. Ecclesiastes is in touch with the way that we humans think and operate in a way that there's not really anybody else I think of who is. So did you notice his justification for this? He doesn't say don't slander people because slander is wrong because he knows nobody's going to listen to that. He says don't slander people because it might go bad for you. 
This is the same reason that he said earlier. He said, don't stick your hand through a wall because having anger uncut is a problem. He says, don't do it because it might hurt your hand. I don't know what this bird is who's creeping outside the window and listening and some kind of parrot who can hear and, then, and speak to its, its master. I think the point is, if you slander, it might get back to the king, and when it does, it won't be good for you, so don't do it. It's, it's a really practical morality. Conclusion is, is simply, if it won't work out for you, don't do it, which is kind of a, a base level, right? Like, we as Christians are called to something higher. But Ecclesiastes stoops down really low and says, even if you won't do right because it's right, at least don't do foolish because it will turn around and come back to bite you. And so even, he says, if everyone around you is playing silly games and winning silly prizes, verse 20, he says, you don't join. Just because the whole world is, that's not reason for you. And in stark contrast to all of this foolishness that we've seen in chapter 9 and 10, There's a a wisdom that shines brightly before it. See, on, on one hand, we can hold up the folly of the world. And on the other hand, one of the things that we do as a church when we gather together regularly is we remember God's wisdom as we share in communion. Because the folly of the world and the wisdom of God are about as opposite as you could get. Where the folly of our world prioritizes riches and fame, remember the the poor wise man at the beginning that was quickly forgotten, where that's what our world prizes, God accomplishes his work through humility. Maybe you think of Philippians 2. And Paul calls us to count others more significant than ourselves. He gives that that great poem where he tells us to have the mind that is in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and made himself nothing and humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Where folly lacks self-control, getting angry at a neighbor and digging a pit to try to trap them in. Where folly lacks self-control and tries to just hard charge through a wall and meeting a snake. God's wisdom is riddled with self-control. It's Jesus who is obedient, even obedient to the point of death. Where folly leads to the destruction of, of neighbor because We are an integrated group. My foolishness affects you and yours affects me. We live together. Where folly leads to destruction for neighbor, Jesus brings salvation. Where folly leads to maybe quite literally uncreation, God creates good, and what does sin do? Sin tears down all the good that God has done. 
where folly leads to that, Jesus' wisdom leads to new creation. What, what does Paul say we are? We're new creation in Christ. Christ is making all things new. Where folly undoes, God's wisdom does. This reminds us of 1 Corinthians 1. I don't have it on the screen, um, but I want to go ahead and read some of that for us. Paul takes up these same twin themes. He's thinking about God's wisdom and the foolishness of the world. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18, Paul says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. He then asks, where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And then he skips, I'm going to skip down to verse 26. Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's as we gather together and partake in communion, Lord's Supper, that that we're reminded that the wisdom of God is a strange wisdom. It's not a wisdom that we would just pick out and decide for ourselves, but it's the way that God works and, and moves. He takes what we would at first regard as foolish and weak and flimsy and shows us that he is in fact strong and stable and sturdy. And so when we take communion together, which we will hear in just a minute, I'm going to go ahead and ask Mike and the music team to make their way up. Um, we're doing some remembering. We're remembering the central, pivotal event in all of history. We're remembering Jesus' death. For it's in that death that what everybody regarded as foolish was actually shown to be wise. And Jesus gave his disciples on the the night before he was arrested, he shared a Passover meal with them. And and he re-identified some of the elements of it. And he tied the bread to his body. He tied the wine to his blood. And he said, both of these are broken. They're poured out for you, for the forgiveness of sins. And so Christians, ever since that day, have gathered together. And when we've gathered together, we've cherished the bread because the bread reminds us of Jesus' body. We've cherished the cup because the wine reminds us of Jesus' blood spilt for the forgiveness of sins. And so what is the Lord's Supper? The Lord's Supper is our remembering of Jesus' death and his resurrection. It's 
one of the ways that God meets with us, that he grows us, that he transforms us. And because of that, the Lord's Supper is an invitation to those who are trusting in Jesus. It's not just any old supper. It's a supper of remembering Jesus' death and looking forward to his return. And so if you're present with us this morning, and Jesus is your sole hope for salvation, if he is where your trust is placed, then we'll invite you to join us in Lord's Supper this morning. Paul tells us that we ought, though, to examine ourselves. Because it's not just any ordinary supper. It's a supper that is tied to Jesus. And so Mike and the music team are going to uh, lead us in reflecting on, on Jesus' death as we sing, Alas, and did my Savior bleed. And as we sing that, let me invite you to reflect on the bread and on the cup as we sing that.